reached a point in Acts where Paul is on his way to Rome. So I thought it would be a good time to uh, break from Acts for a number of weeks as we uh, really look at a theme called Mercy at the Manger. Mercy at the Manger. Um, we want to uh, explore and uh, try to uh, focus in on uh, what is the wonder of the mercy at the manger. And uh, I'll explain a, a bit of the reason why um, I thought this series may be helpful for my heart and I also trust for your heart, uh, because there can often be a disconnect between our lives and experiencing this wonder of the birth of Christ. Uh, there are certain challenges, heart challenges in our life where we can simply lose the wonder, not just of mercy at the manger, but lose the wonder of Christ himself and the beauty of what we have in Christ. Part of the reason that we do this as well is to not pretend that everything is okay. We know it's been a challenging few years. Uh, we also know that there are challenges within and challenges without, and there are things that will rob us of the wonder. So we will actually wonder more at our troubles, uh, more at what's happening in the world than we will um, at the birth of Jesus Christ. So we want to face some of those head on and uh, ask ourselves, uh, what robs us of the wonder of the birth of Jesus? What robs us of the wonder of the birth of Jesus? If we just go back for a moment to the story of Jesus and his birth, we will know that it was a time where people were filled with wonder. They were filled with awe. Uh, they, they couldn't get over that uh, this child was born. And it would cause um, sometimes just reflection, and then sometimes it would cause praise. You may remember the the wise men in Matthew 2 coming, and they said when they, find, or when they saw the star uh, and, and they could visit Jesus, um, when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. And then when they met Jesus, they, they, they bow down and pay homage to the king, uh, to baby Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 41 tells us that uh, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and Elizabeth has John the Baptist, or John in, his, in her womb. And we read that even John in the womb leaps for joy uh, um, inside of Elizabeth. And then we read that Elizabeth is overwhelmed with the blessings, and Mary starts this song that brings glory to God. There's this overwhelming sense of the goodness of the mercy of God in the birth of Jesus we could go to the shepherds. Uh, the people are amazed at the shepherds' report. We could go to the angels before that. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. When Mary uh, receives the visit, we read that Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and uh, meditated on them. There was this moment of quiet reflection of the treasure that she had received in the birth uh, of, of baby Jesus. And then we read the shepherds glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard. Are we, a, are we a praising community? Are we a praising family? Are we captivated, captured by the wonder? Uh, do we have those moments of reflection as we consider that there is mercy at the manger? So what robs us 
of the wonder of the birth of Jesus? That's going to be our first question, and we're going to look at that in verses 9 through 12. We're going to look at a few things over the next few weeks of what robs us. Uh, Today we're going to take a look at what robs us of the wonder of Jesus. And then the second question, what fills us with the wonder of the birth of Jesus? What robs us and then what fills us? Uh, And then we'll try to apply it to our lives. If you were to think of maybe a few things uh, that might rob you of the wonder, of the quiet reflection of the praise and adoration of Jesus that guides your life and gives you perspective and gives you hope and gives you joy in the week ahead, what would some of the things be that rob you of that? The one that we want to take a look at this morning is the one that we find in this parable told by Jesus, and that is... Uh, they complained or they grumbled. There was a grumbling people. The story is relatively simple. Uh, When we look at what robs us of the wonder of the birth of Jesus, we read that uh, there were workers and they were uh, looking to be hired for the day. So they stand in a certain place. A landowner comes out and meets them and says, uh, the the ones at 6 o'clock in the morning, he agrees uh, to pay them a denarius. Denarius back then would be a a full day's wage. So they'd have a full day's wage uh, beginning at 6 o'clock. But the interesting thing about this landowner is, and this is how we read some of his generosity, is he kept on going back. 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock and after. uh, He didn't say it'd be a denarius, but he said, I'll pay you what is right. So whatever this landowner would do, uh, he would be faithful in his payment and he would pay them what is right. I'll give you whatever is right, he said. And then, five o'clock, one hour before quitting time, uh, he comes out again and he says, what are you doing? Because uh, they were doing nothing. And he says, well, no, they say, no one's hired us. So he says, come and work for me. And then you have this uh, tension that's building. You have this moment where uh, they're going to be paid at the end of the day. They didn't wait for two weeks or whatever it might be. At the end of each day, they would get paid. And the landowner says, uh, to the man who will pay him, start with those who worked, uh, began work at 5 o'clock. You can imagine, uh, they're thinking, okay, well, we only worked an hour. They got paid a full denarius. They got paid a full day for one hour's work. Now, you can imagine every other worker now becomes a math major because they start doing the calculations and they start saying, if they worked for uh, one hour and got paid a full day, I worked for 12 hours, I could get paid for 12 full days for, uh, for one day's work. Uh, and, and so you can imagine this excitement starting to build up in them. Uh, they, the, the five o'clock workers, uh, one denarius, the six o'clock workers, maybe they'd get 12 denarius. 12 days of work for one day. But that's where things broke down, right? We read uh, in verse 9, When those who were hired about five came, they received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more. We might ask ourselves, where does grumbling start in my heart? When I'm unhappy... And when I begin to grumble, and when I begin to complain, where does it start? It's very interesting. Verse 10 says it starts in our heart when we say words like, we assume that we would get more. If I have a grumbling, complaining heart, if I have a murmuring heart, 
If I am dissatisfied with what I have received from God, it begins because I assume, or your version might say, I expect, or I thought, that I would get more. When I came to Christ, I thought I would get more from him. I would get more blessings and fewer challenges. I thought my health would be changed. I thought my wealth would be changed. I expected more from God. And then the expectation or the assumption that we would get more turns into grumbling. Look at verse 10. So when, they, when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. So they assume that they would get more, just as we assume that we would get more, and we begin to complain. Or again, your version might say, began to grumble, began to murmur. And not just this, um, this complaining and this murmuring isn't just, uh, you know, into the air. It's towards the landowner. They look and they say, well, and we'll see this in a moment, look at how much everybody else got paid. We, we worked an entire day. We have a complaint, and they bring it to the landowner. When we complain and when we, when we grumble, it's not just out there into no man's land. It's we, we complain and we grumble against the landowner, God. And then verse 12 continues to open up the grumbling heart. Listen to uh, what they say. In verse 12, these last men put in one hour. So if our grumbling and complaining starts with our assumption that we should get more, uh, and then we begin to complain and grumble against the landowner, then that grumbling and complaining happens because we look around at others. We say, like these men, these last men put in one hour. Look at what everybody else is doing. Look at what they, look at what they don't do. They stood around for 11 hours and they did nothing. So our grumbling is because we, don't, we haven't received what others have received in their life. And not only does grumbling look to others, but grumbling looks inside yourself. Grumbling looks at what you have done, what others have and what you have done. Listen to the last part of verse 12. These last men put in an hour and you made them equal to us who have bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. Look at they have done nothing for 11 hours. They go in and get a full denarius. We have the burning heat. We have a full day's work. We have the burden of a full day's work. Look at all that we have done. Look at all that they have not done. So grumbling and complaining is not just this heart where we complain against the landowner, but we look at others and see what they haven't done, and we look at ourselves, and we look at what we have done, and we say before the landowner, is that all that we get? Or why did they have it so good? We worked so hard. We had the burden of the heat. We had the, uh, the burning heat. We had the full day's work. Why uh, do we get so little? They've done nothing. I'm in the heat of the day, grumbling, complaining, murmuring. I deserve more. Do you want to know what robs us of the joy of finding mercy at the manger? Is I deserve more. As I begin to assume 
that because I'm doing great things for the kingdom of God, that God should be doing great things for the kingdom of David. And if the expectations or the assumptions are not met, then I begin to complain against the landowner. And I even state my case before God. I say, God, look at what they haven't done and look at what I have done. Look at who they are not. Look at who I am. Look at how much I've done for your kingdom. Look at how well I've obeyed your law. Look at how much I've gone to... Look at all of these things that I'm doing for you. God, I deserve more. And to say that we deserve more is to be the exact opposite or to think the exact opposite of what mercy at the manger is to be. So what robs us of the wonder of the birth of Jesus? That we assume that we would get more. That we begin to complain against the landowner. And you just watch this unfold in your own heart as I watch it unfold in my heart. Uh, Then I look at others and see what they haven't done and I look at myself and see what I have done and I end up saying they've done nothing. I'm in the heat of the day. Look at how difficult this is. I deserve more. If that's what robs us of the wonder of the birth of Jesus, then what fills us with the wonder of the birth of Jesus? If complaining and murmuring and assuming that we deserve more robs us, then what fills us with the wonder of the birth of Jesus? Now, before we look at uh, verses 12 through 14, we just want to notice that God is so gracious to instruct us in how to confront a grumbling heart. If I look at my heart, and I imagine if you look at your heart, sometimes the list of praise can almost be as equal as the list of, of disappointments, of unmet expectations, assumptions, of what God should be doing for us. And God, in, I think in these uh, few verses, does an amazing job of beginning uh, to heal our heart, our, our grumbling hearts. See, we could read books, but we find in three verses what is explained in books when it comes to a dissatisfied heart before God. But this is a journey, right? It doesn't just happen. It's not like we're going to wake up tomorrow morning and we're all of a sudden going to be uh, the, most, uh, the people who, who praise the most and don't have any grumbling in our heart. It is, just, it is part of our hearts. It is part of my heart to look to others to see what they haven't done, to look to myself and see what I have done, and then to look to God and say, God, something's off. You have treated them as an equal with me. You've treated them as an equal And so God begins to dig into our heart a bit. And he says, do you really want to be robbed of uh, finding mercy at the manger? So, um, and and I I think if we were to try to do do this by ourselves, probably it would go something like this. We would probably turn inward and we'd say, well, what needs to be changed about me? So there's certain things that I need to change about myself. And then uh, we would probably turn outward, and then we'd say, well, what needs to be changed about my circumstances? So basically what we're saying is we're going to become really good non-grumblers. Every time I complain, I'm just going to... Um, I, I was reading a bit about this on the Internet this past week. Someone um, had this no complaining, no grumbling, uh, living out the Bible for a year, which would be really astounding if nobody grumbled or complained for a year. Um, because most of it's hard activity, right? You don't know most of my grumbling. You don't know most of my complaining. Um, I keep it in check. Uh, and, and the same thing is, you know, you can uh, outwardly 
uh, not grumble, but God does this heart work. But we usually begin with what we need to do. I need to change something inside of me, or I need to change uh, somehow my circumstances, and then I will be more praise-filled. But the interesting thing about what happens here is the Bible starts with, it's actually a God problem. It's a landowner problem. Your circumstances can change the same, or can stay the same. Your outward circumstances, whatever it is that you're not happy with, they can stay the exact same. And you can have a different heart because when we deal with God, God begins uh, to change a grumbling, uh, disappointed heart that somehow God's getting my life wrong. So, what, what three things do we learn about God? The first thing that we learn about God in uh, first is uh, God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. If we are going to have a grumbling heart, it begins often with thinking that God is not trustworthy. Well, how do we know that? Well, look at verse 13. He replied to one of them. So they've come and brought their complaint before, uh, before the landowner, and now it's the landowner who's going to speak, and he says, friend. I love the word friend. We don't have a lot of time to spend there. But this landowner isn't, you know, when we would think sometimes with our grumbling that God, would be, that God wouldn't say to us, friend. But it, he, the landowner says, I understand. Friend. Let's, let's work through this. So it's not, we do it in relationship with the landowner. Friend. And then he says, uh, he says this. I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? I love the first part because this is, I think, one of the greatest battles of grumbling and of a complaining heart. God, somehow you got it wrong. You must be wrong. Sometimes the translation uh, is, I'm, I am not uh, being unfair to you. You ever said that to God? God, this is so unfair. It's so unfair. I look at everybody else, and then I look at me. It's so unfair. We want to be the landowner. That's part of the problem. That's part of my problem. We want to tell God what is good for us, what we deserve. If someone who does nothing has a denarius, then we deserve 12 denarius. God must be wrong. God must be unfair. And we must be right. And then he moves on to say, uh, didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Here's one of the... One of, I think this is a, a question that helps us when we're grumbling. So he's basically saying, uh, when he says, didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Um, He says, first of all, am I not doing what's right? But also, I'm paying you, I'm generous. You see, this this is a real question that we struggle with when it comes to grumbling and robs us of finding mercy at the manger. Do you really want to get what you deserve? Because when we find mercy at the manger, what we begin to understand is we don't even deserve mercy. Mercy, by definition, means that what we receive 
is not what we deserve. Remember the blind man who uh, wants to go and, um, you know, Jesus to say hi to Jesus and all the people around him are saying, be quiet. Jesus will never notice you. We're the blind people. We're like, uh, we're, we're like those who um, somebody can pass by. They, God had, Jesus has no reason to stop and visit me. In fact, because of my sin and what we meet, mercy at the manger, we're going to see Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is Jesus. He will save us from our sins. We are before God as those who do not even um, love God. We run from God. We rebel against God. And yet we receive mercy at the manger. And in fact, it becomes even more difficult because um, the world is like a grumbling factory that produces grumbling people. We live in a world that wants you to grumble. We live in a world that wants you to complain, that wants you to compare, that wants you to write those nasty things to other people and tell them that they're not like you. We live in a grumbling factory producing grumbling goods. What are we happy about? We know what it is to be unhappy because of what we do not have. And, And so what we begin to learn is that God is trustworthy. Is God doing you wrong? When Jesus met you at the manger, when you met Jesus at the manger, is Jesus doing you wrong? Is God unfair? Did God get your life wrong? Did God get your body wrong? Did God get your gender wrong? Did God get your mind wrong? Did God get your emotions wrong? Did God get your struggles wrong? Your health wrong? Your marriage wrong? Your singleness wrong? Your family wrong? Your workplace wrong? Your friends wrong? Your country wrong? You see, we come before God and we say, God, I'm doing so much. I deserve more. I assume I deserve more. We deserve blessing after blessing. But in all those things that we just said, is God trustworthy? And do we trust these words from God? I am doing you no wrong. I know what I'm doing. And I'm not doing, I'm not unfair. I'm not doing what's wrong. If God is trustworthy, the second thing that we learn about God is found in the next verse, and that is God finds joy in giving to those who do not deserve his kindness. God finds joy. Now, you may be surprised at that because grumbling might be such a part of your life that you do wonder if God actually finds joy in giving. You see, we think that we would be better givers than God, but God finds joy in giving to those who do not deserve his kindness. Listen to the next verse. He says, friends, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Now here's verse 14. Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Take what's yours 
and go. God's giving you what you need for today. God's giving you what is right. And not only has God given you what's right, but God has given you in abundance. In abundance. Because God delights to give. It's such good advice. You know, when you sometimes, we, like, going, uh, grumbling's like this dark pit that we go into that just brings darkness, right? And it surrounds us with just this unsettled heart. There's no rest. And what, do we, what, do, what, what, what is some helpful advice this morning? Well, if we can trust God, if we can grow in our trust of God, then gee, these simple words, take what is yours and go. Receive the good from God and go. Live your life. Shine the light. Take the, take the bucket off the, la- the lamp and shine the, shine the light of God's goodness. Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. I actually think those are probably uh, the key words in this parable. Because we're made to understand that we're like that 11th hour worker. Have you ever outgiven God with the work that you've done for him? Have I done more than God? Am I more generous than God? You see, this is, this is uncomfortable because now it gets to not just, well, I need to change my circumstances or I need to change um, someone else's or, or get, you know, draw boundaries or whatever. And all those things might be healthy and good and true. But though, that's not ultimately going to solve a grumbling heart. Jesus said, or the landowner says, I want to give the last man the same as I gave you. We have received undeserved blessings and mercy and grace and love and patience and forbearance and gentleness from the hand of God. That is what it is to have mercy at the manger. It is to read that we are the 11th hour, that we have been standing around and really done nothing. That's you and me. What have I really done for the kingdom of God? Honestly, that I would deserve the praise of the creator God when he would send his son Jesus to live a life I couldn't live, die a death that, would, um, that he bore the wrath on my behalf and he rose again from the... He bore wrath so there would be no condemnation in me for me. That is his gracious gift. And then he says, don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? You see how packed these three verses are? We are more concerned about our freedom than God's freedom. But the landowner comes back to our freedom and says, while you're trying to understand what free will is in your life, understand this first, that the landowner is free to do as he pleases. This landowner is supremely free. Not just part, he is supremely free to do what he wants with what belongs to him. And all things belong to him. Is God not free to do as he pleases within his character? And on top of that, has God not faithfully provided in the darkest places of your distress and my distress? Has God ever done wrong? Has God ever been unfaithful? 
We may not understand the plans of God. We may not understand the ways of God. They might be vastly mysterious to us, but we know because we read it throughout Scripture. You read the life of Joseph. You read the life of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I've been going through the book of Acts, the book of Acts, and all the things that are turned against them, all the darkness around them, and they persevere, so they spread the gospel without hindrance, and they spread the gospel with great boldness. Has God not been faithful to you even in the darkest places of distress. God says to us, don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? And so if God enjoys giving, then the final thing that we know and we can trust is that God gives generously. I love this last question. Do you not love this last question? Listen to what he says. Do I have the right to do uh, what I want with with what is mine? And then he says this. Are you jealous because I'm generous? We so get God wrong, don't we? I do. That's why I need verses like this. He says, are you jealous because I'm so generous? We misunderstand God. The parable expresses the sheer abundance of God's grace. Can we just say, even to be gathered as a church family this morning is the sheer abundance of God's grace. You have met mercy at the manger. That your heart would have an inkling, even if you're here and it's not your favorite thing to do, even if you're here to have this moment is the sheer abundance of of God. Christmas is the sheer abundance of God's grace. Ask yourself this question. What did God withhold at the manger? You see, there's mercy at the manger. Even in your brokenness and your tears, God's grace is never used up. God's grace never stops. God's love is never used up. God's love never stops. And it's not just grace for the forgiveness of sins, but it's grace to empower you to live a joyful, peaceful life in some of the most disturbing and difficult times that you will go through. So that even in the battles that you're facing, you can have this inner joy and peace because you say, God, I have not deserved more. And what you have given me, I trust that you delight to give and you are generous in your giving. Yes, my life may be in a very difficult place, my health, my mind, whatever it might be, but there is this solid rock that we stand upon. His name is Jesus. We have met mercy at the manger. So what is this message of Christmas? You will go outside and you will go through this week And you will hear again and again, you can have more, you can be more, and you can do more. And you will hear more, more, more. You deserve more. You deserve more. And God's answer is he changes that one word more with mercy. You have received mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Everything is a gift. Everything is received as a gift. So what God has given me, I receive with mercy or as mercy. You don't have to work harder 
to be loved. You don't have to work harder to be taken care of by God. And I trust that's the same thing that happens in your marriage or your single friendships or your, um, your families. You don't have to work harder to be loved. You don't have to work harder to be taken care of. You don't have to be stronger this Christmas. You don't have to do great things for God this Christmas. You can live in your weakness and you can find mercy. And what happens when you find mercy? When you find mercy, you will be a generous people. You see, this is what begins to happen as we ask ourselves, well, why am I not so generous? Would you not love to be a more generous person? More generous with your love? More generous with mercy? More generous uh, with what God's given us? more generous with our time, with our energy. When we receive the generosity of God, we become a more generous people. When we receive and understand and trust that God is a generous God, then the overflow of a generous God is instead of seeing what we do not have, we recognize what we do have. And when we recognize what we do have, we recognize that God is overflowing in abundance. And out of the overflowing of his goodness in my life, I have so much to give. Not because I'm doing great things, but because in my weakness, God has given me so much generosity that the generosity overflows and it cannot be contained. So we began with, this is what I expect from God. He has not given me enough. If, we, if God has not given us enough, then there is nothing left over to give to others. But when you meet mercy at the manger, the abundance of forgiveness that you have received, you become an abundant forgiver. The abundance of mercy that you have received at the manger, you become merciful. The abundance of love that you receive you become abundant in love. Knowing a generous God creates a generous people. So, God says, or the Bible says, and this parable tells us, what robs us of the joy of finding mercy at the manger? If you are trying to earn your salvation, if you are trying to work out your salvation so somehow you stay in God's family because of what you have done, you will never do enough, and God will never be enough. But when you meet mercy and the forgiveness of sins, you will begin to find the joy of Christ, and in finding the joy of Christ, you will. And I pray that by extension, Grace Bible Church will be a generous, generous people towards one another. May God bless to make us a generous people. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, you say in Philippians 2, for it is God who is working in us both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So we're to do everything without grumbling and arguing. Lord, may we trust that you are thankful to give, and when you give, you give generously. And you are working in us both to will and to work according to his good purposes. 
Lord, there is much to rob us of the joy and peace of finding mercy at the manger. And today we've looked at grumbling. Lord, help us. Remove it. Make us a praise-filled people and a generous people. In Jesus' name, amen. 